Today's episode of The Remix is perhaps the most important one yet because we have the person whose work touched me and changed the trajectory of my life as it has for millions of others. I give you the author of Firms of Endearment and Conscious Capitalism, Raj Sisodia. Welcome to The Remix. Really, really happy to have uh, a very special guest, Raj Sisodia is the F.W. Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business, Whole Foods Market Research Scholar at Babson College. He's a co-founder and chairman of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. Um, he's the author of at least, I don't know how many books, Raj. I only know how many you've written since I've known you. I think it's seven since I've known you. <laughs> I think it's about 12 in all. So. Yeah, uh, it's 12 in all. But of those seven, including the one, and I you know you hear this all the time because I'm around you when you do, but including the one that sort of pretty much changed my life forever, Firms of Endearment, How World-Class Companies Profit from Passion and Purpose. Uh, and of all those things, most importantly, a great brother and a great friend uh, and a fellow bourbon drinker. So Raj Sisodia, welcome to uh, Capitalism, the Remix podcast. How are you? I am great, Jeff. Uh, always, always great to spend time with you. Yeah, you as well. Where are, where are you today? Where, where are you? Where are we catching you? I'm at home in uh, downtown Boston in the Back Bay, as it's called, in, uh, in my apartment. Yeah, I love the, the green screen. You you can't see it out there. Raj and I are talking face to face. He's got a green screen, which is great for Zoom. But it's also great if you haven't cleaned your room, you can put the green screen on. Yeah. You can't see it. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, look, Raj, um, I know that we've, we've talked about all the things that we've collectively been working on for a long time, but just give you a, a little bit. You know, the idea of this podcast, a remix, is that we believe that, that there's a transformation of our basic sort of beliefs about uh, an understanding of the purpose of business and society. And I, I'm, I'm of the mindset that we've got to begin to view work, business, and capitalism as institutions of societal benefit and not simply institutions of finance and profit. And if we do this, uh, the benefits will be wide ranging and not just for investors, which I do think investors will profit, but not just for investors, but also for many who believe that the system is either rigged against them uh, at worst, which we've been hearing a lot about in the news and all over, or that the system, the capitalist system is just structured in a way that only is set up to reward the, the few and leaves the many behind. So, um, so we're trying to sort of, you know, the, the idea of this is just to investigate this. How do we remake capitalism uh, in a way that's beneficial for more of us without, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, if you will, right? So I think I'd love to start to have you talk about your beliefs and ideas about sort of the future of capitalism and share those, you know, in the context of, you know, just your life, how you got to to where you are today in terms of the thinking about business and capitalism and work, and also your career about how it's evolved over time. So I'd love to just start there and have get your get your take on this as a premise. Yeah, well, so I think the the role of business uh, and the purpose of business uh, in society certainly needs to evolve from what it has been pigeonholed into. I think the last couple of centuries. Uh, that it was about accumulating private wealth 
and uh, and sort of feeding the appetites of other people in order to do that for ourselves. You know, I think we need to zoom back and look at why why do all societal institutions get created and why do they exist? And at a macro level, it's about promoting human flourishing and fulfillment in certain dimensions, right? And we have to think about business, I believe, in that way as well. Because in a free society, businesses are given the opportunity to meet our needs, right? Mm -hmm. Government doesn't really take care of most of our needs. Government simply provides uh, the infrastructure, some basic safety net, right? Uh, sort of the, uh, the, the, the rules of the road in a way, and then gets out of the way and allows businesses the freedom, the opportunity, but also the responsibility of, uh, of taking care of people, of meeting their needs. And how we do that and what energy we use uh, in order to, uh, uh, to approach that, that great responsibility, I think matters a lot, right? So if you think about us as individuals, I believe why are we here? Uh, we had uh, Richard Leider on our broadcast recently, and he said a generic purpose for human beings is to give and to grow, right? Which I, I have expressed it as we are here to evolve ourselves and we are here to care for each other. At some basic level, I think that's what really is our is our uh, purpose. That's what fulfills us most deeply as human beings. So for us to realize our extraordinary potential that we are born with and to use that in service of each other. That's what's the most satisfying thing. So if we accept that as a premise, and then we can think of business as an amplifier of that capacity, right? Organizations can either amplify or they can uh, suppress our, our, our innate human uh, tendencies and capacities, right? So if we do it with the right energy, then business becomes a way that we can care at scale, that we can promote human growth uh, at scale. And I think that's what the best organizations do. You know, in your ordinary life, you can only care for a few people. You can only see to the growth of your children and yourself, perhaps. But if you start a great organization and great companies are pres- precious, uh, social institutions, uh, you can then actually do that at tremendous scale. Right. It's a way to amplify caring and growth into the world. And I think that's how we have to think about it so that we align what businesses do right now, too much of what businesses do, the more we grow, uh, the, the worse things get right. in the long run right. for planet. And so we kind of are a cancer uh, on the planet and we have to change that so that business growth is completely correlated with human and planetary flourishing. Yeah. You know, so when you, if it's so fascinating to me that when we talk about this, like when you talk about, you know, the evolve and care for each other, and lots of the other things you talked about, uh, about why we are here and, you know, how things are created. Most, more times than not, you get people nodding their head, right? They say, yeah, that makes perfect sense for me. And then when we want to say, then, then translate that into, then how does that translate into how you do your business? Why do we get that pushback? Well, wait a minute. Those two things are separate that I can believe this in my in my day-to-day life, but I leave this at the door when I walk into the office. Um, I, I find that all right. often. Yeah, yeah. And it's because, you know, as they say, bad ideas are more significant than bad people. So likewise, good ideas matter more, right? So we have been uh, sort of in the, uh, uh, you know, we've been in a trance. We've been fed these very bad ideas. Uh, 
about what business is. And somehow that got encoded into our textbooks and to our education and to some degree into the law, although not as much as people think. And we feel like that we're supposed to behave that way, that we have permission to behave that way, and that that, that is the best way to behave. And so it's really now a matter of awakening and, and uh, elevating our consciousness and seeing reality in a different way um, so that we go from, you know, it's become just to go back to Richard Leider, and he said, give and grow. And I said, yeah, most of us are about grab and go. Right? <laughs> what do we do? We've got 60 years here, whatever, next number of years to work. Grab as much as you can and then we leave. Yeah. Right? And meanwhile, we're left, uh, you know, the future generations are left holding the bill and paying the real price, uh, enduring the real cost of, of our doing business. So, so we have to make that shift from grab and go to give and grow as individuals and as, uh, as institutions and certainly as, as business. And that means we have to start almost with a clean sheet. We have to start, you know, by accepting the premise. Adam Smith's great uh, insight was that freedom leads to prosperity. And that we don't need to get rid of. We don't want to go to a government-controlled socialist, you know, uh, utopia that becomes a dystopia very quickly. Uh, but we want to say, okay, so human beings want to be free and they deserve to be free, yes. Human beings are motivated by self-interest, yes. We accept that. But it doesn't end there, right? I mean, Adam Smith wrote the earlier book, uh, uh, Moral Sentiments, yeah. which is about the human need to care. So we have self-interest, which is programmed into every living thing on this planet. The tiniest microbe tries to preserve itself, right? So we have self-interest, but we also have the need to care which we share with certain mammals, etc. But we are at a whole different level of that. And we have a drive to purpose. And we have the ability to think about our lives in that rich way, right? That we can actually have a purpose. So we need institutions that reflect the whole human being, at least a three-dimensional view, if not more, of human beings. So that our work is a place that we can achieve our legitimate self-interest, but we can also express our caring and our uh, hunger for purpose can also be fulfilled uh, through our work. You know, um, I want to grab onto something you said about the moral sentiments, the theory of moral sentiments. I, I think that I find too few people have read it, much less heard of that book. And I think that everyone in business should read it, right? Yes. Uh, you know, the way I express it at times is that capitalism had a mother and a father. And they were both Adam Smith. <laughs> the mother energy was in moral sentiments. Yeah. Father energy was in wealth of nations, right? Father energy is about achieving and striving and creating and building and winning and, right, all of that. The mother energy is in caring and inclusiveness and compassion and empathy and love. And as we do in our lives, to many of us, I think, myself included in many ways, uh, we take our mothers for granted or we take the mother energy for granted. Yeah. In some cases, we may have received that from our fathers. So I'm not saying it's a male-female thing, but there are these two distinct energies, right, uh, that create us. And we take that for granted, and therefore we are all, everybody is running after that, that masculine energy manifestation, right? Everybody is trying to win in the world, which means some, somebody has to lose in order for me to win under the traditional definitions. We're out there climbing over each other, using each other, abusing each other, desperate to get ahead and accumulate and... And it all turns out to be hollow and meaningless, right. doesn't it? For so many people, I mean, we have clear examples of that. Uh, you know that uh, after all of that, people end up feeling empty, and you know, you look at the levels of depression and drug addiction and suicide. 
uh, in many rich countries and among rich people within those rich countries. It's it's extraordinary, right? So we have to go back and balance. We have to honor. I mean, one of the great insights that I received in the last few years uh, when I worked with a coach for the first time, and she heard the story of, of my life and my work, and she said, do you realize that you have been honoring your mother with your work mm-hmm. for the last 15 years? And before that, you were chasing after your father's approval, you know, and his admiration because you're trying to do things that he cares about in the world, right? Achieve fame and wealth or whatever. And and that's really not your essence and that's really not what fulfills you and that's not what your role is supposed to be. And then when you kind of got onto that path with the book that you mentioned, Firms of Endearment, that kind of I discovered my purpose and I got onto that path about talking about the the missing uh, pieces in the world of business, bringing in a way the mother to the father, right? The, the whole world of business is kind of like a patriarchy. It's all father energy. And you need to bring that mother energy into it right, for it to become whole. And so that's how I was able to not only get fulfillment and meaning in my work, but also have any kind of impact. Yeah. Because anything I did before that, you know, many other people were doing, and it's, there's nothing new there. But this uh, this pathway did did matter, and it did make a difference to uh, to people and to businesses. So I think that's really at a macro level. I think what we need is to bring these two energies, respect and honor the healthy manifestations of each. It's not about saying let's get get rid of masculine, you know. Without without that. A lot of things won't get done. Right. You know, we won't yeah, really yeah. move forward. So we need to move forward, but we need to do it in a loving, inclusive way, right? So we can't, you know, as I say, strength without love is tyranny, and love without strength is ineffective. <laughs> and as Martin Luther King said, you know, we must be tough-minded and tender-hearted. Right. So I think, you know, the wisdom is all there, right? Yeah. It's just we haven't used it and applied it, and somehow we have kept it out of the realm of business. We've created this, you know, this this artificial world, you know, business world. You know, which is different from the human yeah, world right. somehow, right? And different rules apply, and we've kind of, you know, all the classic uh, metaphors from the mafia and the Godfather and others. You know, it's not personal; it's business, and it's a dog eat dog world. And you know, all of that we've created metaphors for business that have nothing to do with humanity and caring and love. It's all about the jungle or a sports field or a war. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, there's there's so many things wrapped up in that in that little you know discussion we just had there. The give and grow. It is a paradox that I call it. Sort of the paradox of purpose is that um, you know you actually can give and grow, and as soon as you remove the shareholder blinders and start understanding that people really want to respond to purpose, you actually end up in business doing better in business because you yes. give people a reason to be engaged and to want to do more for you and all of those sorts of things that make sense. It's so, it's so interesting. And the, the thing that you just talk about, about this, we've got this language that has seeped into that all of, all of, all of the, uh, the knowledge and wisdom is there, but we've got this language that's seeped into, you know, uh, Raj, for those of you out there who don't know, was there in the beginning, very beginnings of the, the foundation of the conscious venture lab. And along with Ed Freeman, helped me think through how we were going to um, train entrepreneurs to think this way about business. And it's so fascinating to me, Raj, one thing that we hear all the time when we are doing, you know, the purpose work. So essentially we have broken down, um, as you have, the tenets of conscious capitalism and made that a part of our curriculum. So when we're doing the purpose work in the, in the lab, 
we hear this from entrepreneurs all the time. First of all, it's really hard for them to sort of strip away the regular language to start to think differently about business. So it takes a long time for us to sort of peel the onion back. But why are you doing this? Why did you start this business? But we always, and this, we've done this hundreds of times now, we always get to the kernel. And it's always about that thing that you talked about earlier about, you know, promoting human flourishing in some way. I don't care what the business is. At the, there's always a core of, of it that has some relationship to that. Mm-hmm. And when we get there, invariably the entrepreneurs will say, Oh, I've known that all along. I just didn't think I was, uh, I was able, I was, uh, you know, I was supposed to say that. I didn't think that that would go yeah. over in business. I can't say that to investors. So yeah. that's been so fascinating to me to see in, in real life just happening. Yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, so often we start with the business case, right? Any new idea, what's the business case? Right. I think we should set the business case completely aside in the first part of that conversation. Don't even talk about dollars and cents. Just talk about the human case, right? And what, in what way, and the language I use nowadays is that of healing, in what ways are you promoting healthy growth, uh, reducing suffering, and enabling more joy? Now, ideally, do all three of those, yeah. right? But at least do two, and certainly one. And so once you figure out that here's a way in which I, in my way, unique way in the world, I can bring about more healing by one of those three things or more. Uh, then we say, okay, now can we craft a business model around that? Is there a way to make this self-sustaining and like a perpetual growth machine, right? A perpetual motion machine so that we don't rely on donations and subsidies and so forth. Now, if you can't do that, it may still be worth doing, uh, but it then has to exist as a, as a nonprofit or as a government program. Right. Right, but but our our preference and our bias is towards finding a way to make it into a business because that makes it scalable and that makes it sustainable, and ultimately add more into the world than it than it takes. Right? So I think we have to start there. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's a good because I, I I know that we've we've talked about that a few times over the years about how you know. Um, students have come to you with an idea. So I have an idea, you know, Professor Sisodia for a not-for-profit. And we, as we're the language of the Conscious Venture Lab, we get not-for-profits are, that are, you know, attracted to us. And we're always telling them, it's great. If you can't figure out another way to scale this, that's fine. But we like to sort of investigate, can you turn this into a real, a real for-profit business first so we can scale that good that you're doing more easily, right? Yeah, and that's a real mental shift that needs to happen, especially among the young people, right? Uh, so if you look at the current younger generations, whatever we call them now, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, I've lost track of those. Yeah. <laughs> but but by consensus, they are the most purpose-driven generations we've ever had yeah. at a young age. They're idealistic. Uh, they are extremely intelligent. I mean, there's all this data with the Flynn effect showing that we've been gaining 4 to 5%. It was a 3 to 4% of IQ every decade for the last eight plus decades now, nine decades. So most intelligent generation we've ever had, uh, most uh, in, uh, educated generation we've ever had, most purposeful generations we've ever had, right? And they have access to all the incredible technologies, right? right? So they're most informed and most connected, uh, as well. So all of the pieces are in place, but that idealism seeks to find its, uh, its, its expression mostly through nonprofits, right? Because I, I've been involved in some summer 
camps of kids uh, from across the country that were selected in a very selective process on leadership ethics and sustainability. And I give a talk on conscious capitalism. They read the book, but I ask them first, how many of you intend to, about 40 of them, how many of you intend to go into business? Yeah. Start a business. And literally I get zero hands, right? And I ask, what do you, all of them want to start nonprofits because they want to do good in the world. Right? They want to heal some of the world's suffering. And we've been told that you can't do both. Right. And I said, keep that idea, but let's figure out how you can do it in a business context. The reason they do that is because they've got this, as John and I wrote about in the book, you know, there's a wall between sort of the virtuous and ethical and good nonprofits because they are by definition doing something noble, right, and worthy in the world versus the selfish and greedy and exploitative businesses. Because if they're all about making money, then of course they have to be those things. And it is it is true that if you are primarily driven by making as much money as possible, you are going to create some kinds of suffering. You are going to use uh, people in certain ways, right? You're going to view them as a means to an end, not as an end in themselves, yeah. right? I really care about you if you make me more money, right? And I'm going to do everything I can to squeeze you harder and harder as a customer, as an employee, as a you know, as a planet. So I think that that's a big thing that we have to break. Business, I believe, can be the most idealistic, noble, heroic undertaking. The most, so what, what's, what's happening is that we are getting the, the most, uh, I would say, uh, mercenary-minded young people. Yeah. We are almost like a Darwinian selection process, right? We are selecting for People who are innately somehow through upbringing, genes, or, or, or through, uh, through nature or by nurture, who are more self-regarding and money-regarding, right? Mercenary. And, and those are the ones who are populating many of our business schools yeah. and going on into leadership roles. And that needs to change. I mean, I did a study on this at Bentley, and it was sad, actually, to see the incoming freshman class of 1,000 at a business school. It's only a business school at Bentley. And, and all of them, I mean, you know, the data showed that they, they pretty much said that they had compromised. You know, their friends were going off to do, follow their passions and dreams and become lawyers and, you know, whatever, pursue their liberal arts uh, interests and passions. But these kids were settling. And they would say, I'll get a degree in accounting and I'll get a, get a job and I'm going to do this, you know. So they had sacrificed their idealism. I think it's a, it's a sad and tragic thing. Yeah. Uh, an 18-year-old says goodbye to their idealism. Yeah. Because nothing else changes the world for, for better than idealism. Hey, before we get to the next part of this chat, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and to rate and review us. Give us some love so we can keep the remix spinning. We're starting a revolution for a new kind of capitalism, and we need your help to keep it going. All right. Thanks for that. Let's get back at it. Yeah, I think this is this this might be so far the most important um, episode that we've done because I, it really gets to the point that I think that we're trying to make that, you know, I always have to explain to people after talking of the language of, you know, healing, promoting you, healing, reducing suffering, enabling joy, as you say, that I'm also a capitalist, right? And, they're, and, they, and they, uh, they, they sometimes find that they're, you know, they're thinking that, 
well, we're only going to invest in businesses that don't make money or we're going to invest in concessionary ideas that their ideas will do good, but those do good ideas are not going to be able to create returns. And we're constantly saying, look, we're not concessionary investors. We actually think that if you, if you integrate this notion into business, those businesses will be more successful because they'll be the best run businesses, right? They'll care for people. And, and in return, those people, suppliers, communities, customers, employees will care for the business, right? So as you talk about caring at scale. Yeah, and they will tap into sources of energy that other businesses have no access to. Right. Right. Uh, you know, and there'll be tremendous friction uh, in those in, in traditional businesses that these businesses don't have. So everybody's aligned, everybody's inspired, everybody's moving uh, in, the, in the same direction, right? So there's just so much more. You know, it is all about unleashing and harnessing human energy, yeah. right? Creativity and caring that comes from human beings, and that can't be automated and uh, you know, you can't, AI will not encroach on those things. And the businesses that are able to do that are the ones that, that, that have a tremendous advantage. And traditional businesses don't. They, they only appeal to your self-interest, and the only way they can attract you is by giving you a higher salary and a higher bonus, and it's all carrots and sticks, right? Well, that's a very, very low grade of human, you know, the pyramid of human motivation. Yeah. You're, you're operating at the bottom levels over there. That is not what causes people to do miraculous and divine things on this planet, right? And there's lots of great research on that. I think Daniel Pink summarizes a lot of that in, uh, in his book, Drive. Right, yeah. right? The, in fact, the more you give those kinds of incentives, the less creative people become right. uh, over time. They're not able to creatively problem solve and innovate because they're focused on the reward, not on the, you know, the opportunity to do something. So I think... There's a lot that needs realigning here in the world of business, but the potential is extraordinary because for all its flaws, it is still the greatest societal institution we have for channeling and harnessing human capacities uh, in a certain direction, right, uh, in order to achieve something greater than we can do on our own. Yeah. So we have to just use that technology of business, you know, the way that we organize and evolve it and then align it with the forces, evolutionary forces that are driving us as human beings. Yeah, we always said that nothing has ever changed the world like a motivated entrepreneur, but um, it's not just a motivated entrepreneur. It's a motivated entrepreneur who can create an organization um, that integrates all of these things to get other people you know, motivated in the, in the proper way to give their passions to, to that idea, right? Right. Right. So it needs, I mean, a business is kind of like a hybrid car, right? You need to have both of those things going, Right. you know, both of those, uh, those engines in a way, uh, working simultaneously, the purpose, the values, the mission, the love, the care, the inspiration, and then the fundamentals of organizing and processes and efficiency and supply chain and logistics. And then all of the basics, nuts and bolts have to be in place as well. Or as our friend Richard Barrett talks about full spectrum consciousness, mm -hmm. Everything from basic survival all the way to service to humanity, right? Seven levels. And we need to embody all of those in the business. Yeah, that those things. And we, you know, we try to tell entrepreneurs that those things, what do they do? They eliminate that friction that you talked about earlier in the business. And, you know, we're always trying to sort of bring this, bring this into the context of if you think about, you know, business, let's bring it into the context of the language of business, because guess what? Friction costs money. Right. So if we can eliminate friction from business, wouldn't that be a good thing? We're, I think in some ways, um, and, and Rick, you know, our friend Rick Frazier 
does this too. In some ways, we're trying to use a, you know, use a sort of conscious capitalism uh, jujitsu on people because we ask them the questions, wouldn't this be great, <laughs> right? Wouldn't it be great if every day all your employees got up and they couldn't wait to get to work? They were so on fire with a passion to do, you know, the things that you want to do. And wouldn't it be great if your suppliers were consistently bringing you innovations um, because they were so um, in love with, with what you're doing? And wouldn't it be great if every time you tried to open a new plan or new office, that community welcomed you with open arms? And wouldn't it be great if your customers always gave you the benefit of the doubt because they thought you had their best interests at heart? Everyone nods their head to that. Everyone says yes. Yeah. And we say, okay, well, we think that there was a way to do that, <laughs> right? Sure, yeah, when you align everything together. You know, it's like everybody is on the same side of the table. There are no adversaries, right. really, right? Everybody matters, and as we say, everybody needs to win in that system. If somebody is losing in our ecosystem, any one stakeholder or any segment of a stakeholder. I mean, now there's a lot of awareness around, for example, employees. You might say, well, we've got 80% engagement and we've got uh, all these great numbers. But if there are segments, if there are ethnic groups, if there are age groups, if there are departments, if there are geographies where that's not happening, you know, then there's there's a problem, right, that we need to address. Uh, the biggest thing I see as a common pattern in companies is what I call the caste system, which is the difference between the the blue collar and the white collar, the mm. professional, educated, full-time, salaried, benefited, leadership development programs, et cetera, versus the hourly, no benefits, no security, no investment, you know, high turnover, low engagement, et cetera. Same company. Yeah. And you can say we have this kind of culture. Well, actually, it's a very, very different lived experience. So we need to eradicate the caste system as it exists in society, in places like India, but also within every company. And everybody needs to be treated with respect and dignity and have opportunity to grow and evolve and achieve their potential, regardless of where they start. There should be no dead ends. and There should be no cul-de-sacs within the corporate structure, right? Everything should be a pathway, uh, upward pathway towards evolution, uh, not only financial rewards, but also our ability to to, uh, express ourselves uh, more deeply and more richly through that business. Yeah, yeah. Raj, let's let's take a let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Beginning for me, anyway, and let's talk about um, just firms of endearment because it's such a it, it's such a you know it's central to everything that I do. It's central to the reason why I started this this podcast. To be quite honest, um, I would love to sort of have you just tell us about how that book came about. And, you know, I, I, there's some pieces that I know, but I don't, you know, all of it, but just sort of how 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 it came to life for you. Well, you know, I think as is commonly heard, many books that end up being significant have very, very painful births, <laughs> right? And this book uh, was like the cat with 13 lives. I mean, I literally, that is the number of book proposals that we had to write for this thing to get accepted by a publisher. And it went through, I think, four or five name changes uh, because it started as a very different uh, uh, idea. You know, I had done about uh, 10 years of research, uh, academic research in marketing, and I was frustrated being a marketing professor. I was not inspired. I had, I felt like I was not part of a noble profession. Uh, it was not an inherently self-justifying profession. The world needs doctors and the world needs firemen and the world needs many many things, teachers. Uh, but does the world need more marketers necessarily? Do, do we add real value? 
you know, I used to think in my mind that my father got a PhD in agriculture science, plant breeding, and he's trying to cure world hunger. And I got a PhD in marketing, and I'm trying to sell you some more potato chips. <laughs> right? So I never had any yeah. self-respect in a way. And I, I did a lot of research that justified that that way of thinking yeah. because it showed how much we spent and what we got. You know, I, I documented that we were spending in 2004 about a trillion dollars on all forms of marketing. And the GDP of India that year was $700 billion. Right. Yeah. So, uh, how is it that a billion plus people are living on much less than what we're spending on ads, coupons, and junk mail? So, what are we getting for customers, right. companies, and society? And my answer was nothing really. A very low. Right. Eighty. I did a study on the image of marketing. Eighty-eight percent of American customers don't trust marketing. If it's marketing, that means it's not real. Mm. Right. It's just marketing. Uh, companies got very low returns on their marketing spending, right? 99% of ads are never noticed and 98% of coupons are never redeemed and most of your direct mail goes straight into the trash can. It's it's tragic and, and it's ridiculous, right? I felt it's, it's full of gimmicks and, uh, you know, it's a lot of noise signifying nothing, as Shakespeare said. Um, and so my frustration as a marketing professor was, you know, how do we reform this? So we did a book and a conference called Does Marketing Need Reform? And you know, we got 40 of the leading scholars in the world come to that thing, and they all said, yes, it does need reform. <laughs> we need to send marketing to reform school. Yeah. You know, we need to some, Phil Kotler, the father of marketing, said maybe we should just get rid of the name marketing and just start all over, all over again. People became really emotional. You're trying to marketing the marketing, right? <laughs> <laughs> we need to reinvent the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's gone off. And so anyway, out of all of that negative energy came these questions, and this, uh, the original name, believe it or not, of this project was the shame of marketing, ah. which was Peter Drucker's phrase for the consumer movement in America. He said, marketing's job is to look after the well-being of customers. And if they have to organize against companies, well, that's the shame of marketing. right? And so I was going to use that as sort of the, right, the ultimate indictment of marketing, how it is inefficient, ineffective, unethical, you know, stupid in many ways, etc. cetera. Uh, then I was calling it marketing malpractices. And then finally, my mentor looked at this proposal that I had put together and he said, you know, Raj, in America, people want to hear about the solution and not the problem. And so we've been working on the problem for a decade now, right? Uh, can we refocus this? And that was like a big light went off, light bulb went off for me. It was a simple twist, but it turned the whole thing around. And I called it In Search of Marketing Excellence. Mm-hmm. And I said, the the norm is that companies spend a ton of money on marketing and have lousy outcomes. Spending has skyrocketed while customer loyalty and trust have plummeted at, a, at an industry macro level. So the opposite of that is you don't spend a lot of money and yet your customers love you. And that's kind of the holy grail. So how do we achieve that? And so we set out to find companies like that, which had very, very low marketing budgets, but had an outstanding customer loyalty and trust. And with that lens, we found companies like Whole Foods and you know, container store and uh, Starbucks, I think was one of them. A company here in the Boston area called Jordan's Furniture, et cetera. And we did case studies and we found soon that it really wasn't about marketing. It really was that these companies uh, treated their customers with respect and they tried to do the best they could and look after the well-being of their customers. They didn't try to trick them or take advantage of them or, you know, use gimmicks to attract them and so forth. They just genuinely and sincerely cared about the well-being of their customers. But it didn't stop there. They did the same for their employees and their suppliers and their community. So they were embedded in the stakeholder mindset, right? And when you do that, everybody becomes an advocate on your behalf, right? So they all market for you. Yeah, the best word marketing is free marketing. 
uh, employees join and never leave. So turnover goes down. So you don't spend money on marketing. You don't spend money on on recruiting and training people as much, right? Uh, your suppliers are loyal and innovative, and you know you. So that was stakeholder oriented, and then the glue that held everybody together and, and aligned them was was the purpose and core values. That these companies existed for a reason. They weren't just here to be another retailer, another airline, another grocery store. They were here to do something that their, their founders were passionate about that needed doing. So we started uncovering the, the pillars or the principles, mm-hmm. what would later be called conscious capitalism through that process. And uh, and the distinct moment came, it was in June, probably, what is, what is it now, June 9th? I think it was like June 12th of 2005, uh, when we had David Wolf and I were sitting in the Poconos, uh, working on the book and I was writing some of the stories of some of these companies and, and I found myself with tears in my eyes. Mm. And I said to David, David, I've, I've, I can't see my computer screen. He said, what's wrong? He said, I said, you know, I've never had a positive emotional reaction to my work before. I have never had tears of joy yeah. connected to my work. I've often had anger and frustration and other negative emotions, right? We all do at work. Uh, but Tears of joy. I mean, how many of us can say that, that we experience tears? Maybe a doctor delivering babies uh, or somebody like that. But for the most part, work is not associated with that. And I said, I think I just, I don't even know if I had the language or purpose as much in me, but I just, I think I've figured out what I want to do with the rest of my life. This is the story that I want to tell. I want to learn about it more and I want to amplify it into the world. And so, you know, Joseph Campbell talked about or actually, yeah, he talked about fi- follow your bliss, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I had yeah. discovered what, what was bliss for me. But um, uh, Andrew, uh, what was his name? Andrew Harvey. Andrew Harvey had talked about follow your heartbreak. There are two pathways to finding your purpose. You can follow your heartbreak and follow your bliss. And in my case, I had been following my heartbreak with everything that marketing was doing that was causing suffering and waste. And now I found the other side of that. Right? I found the bliss how we can do it in a way. So so, so it evolved then from In Search of Marketing Excellence. Uh, we were calling it Share of Heart for a while. Yeah. Because these companies were winning not just Share of Market. You know, we've gone from Share of Market to Share of Wallet, and now we're saying Share of Heart. Yeah. But the uh, the editor didn't like that. I said, no, marketing was, you guys are creeping up, and some soon you're going to say Share of Soul. You know, <laughs> it's like going from Wallet to Heart. Yeah. So, yeah. so ultimately we came up, uh, I came up with the name Funds of Endearment. So that's, uh, and then, you know, we, uh, we did the financial analysis at the end. Yeah. So we didn't set out to say, well, let's find the most successful companies and then dissect them, you know. Uh, we said, let's find companies that fit this pattern. Initially, it was spend less money on marketing. Then it became broader to say companies that took after all their stakeholders. And we eliminated companies that had even one stakeholder unhappy. Yeah. Right, that they were doing something with. Uh, and, you know, all the other elements about purpose and leadership and culture. And we ended up with 28. And we did a financial analysis on the 18 public companies after we had done all that. Right. Yeah. Connected those companies. And we wrote down our hypotheses. And, you know, we were still somewhat in that old mi- mindset of, uh, you know, there's no free lunch and this life is a zero-sum game. So yeah. Said, yeah, so they're paying their people better, like, Costco was paying double of Walmart. Uh, they're providing much better benefits, so they're spending more money on healthcare, like Starbucks and others. They're investing in their customer experience. They're not cutting corners. They are paying their suppliers well. They're investing in the community, investing in the environment, and they are paying taxes at a higher rate. It was 34% for 17 of those 18 companies. Amazon was the one that wasn't paying anything yeah. because they had all these accumulated losses, right? So we said, well, maybe there's less left over at the end of the day. 
uh, for uh, investors, right? Because everybody else got paid better. Yeah, right. And we were prepared to make the argument that if you look at total value created, that's is, that's okay. As long as investors are doing well, then this would argue for creating much more value. You're saying everybody's creating value, which we don't normally capture. And of course, what we found was that these companies had outperformed uh, the S&P 500 by nine to one yeah. over a 10-year period. I think that's sort of where we began to, we began to get involved. Yeah, yeah. That's right. that's a lot of people suddenly said, oh, it, it was kind of this feel-good story until then. Yeah. And suddenly people sat up and said, took notice and said, wow, maybe there's something more here. And we weren't convinced. We did the analysis. We said, maybe we made a mistake that let's take Whole Foods out. Let's take this company out. Maybe it's all driven by one company. It was fairly robust. You know, and we still recognize that, uh, you know, uh, we had uh, a certain way of finding those companies by nomination, etc. So it wasn't 100% scientific in that sense. But, you know, business research cannot be. It's a social science. It's not physics, right? So people say, can you prove it? We say, no, we can provide evidence and we can provide a logic yeah. as to why, right? But if you want a theoretical a proof, you know, as you might with physics, that's not happening in business, right? So anyway, that that just was icing on the cake. For many people, that was the whole cake. Uh, then that became a powerful story then about how business can actually be the ultimate win-win activity on this planet. Yeah. And we can create it. It's the story, in, you know, and, and in many ways, it's a story of, you know, much like you, um, of the rest of my life, you know, as we were sitting I, you know, in that in our conference room in Northern Virginia, talking about the manuscript and thinking about there's a new narrative for the purpose of business out there, and then you know, seeing those returns, it's sort of one of the things that sort of you know that was a light bulb for me, quite frankly, right? a light bulb yeah. that went on for me to say there's a different way to think about this, and I think that in some ways, not being you know not being trained in business, right? I got my MBA by starting my first company, right? But I'm an mm. architect, a, you know, a designer, an artist by training. So some ways it's, it feels like that when I saw that, I was like so relieved that I could do something different that was more aligned with my soul or my heart to think about business yeah. in that way because I came from this, you know, this other side of the world, if you will. And I think it's actually better if you come from those other dimensions, right? Because architecture is a wonderful systems thinking discipline, yeah. right? And design thinking likewise, you know, and art and beauty. And, you know, we need to, that's the poetry of life, right? That's, and, and MBAs are too much about the pros and just the nuts and bolts. And, you know, brings it, business students come in their first semester of business school. What do they get? They get accounting. They get econ, micro economics. Maybe they get some calculus and they get, it's like, where's the inspiration? Yeah. <laughs> you know, where's the noble story of human upliftment, etc. I mean, we just dive right into the nuts and bolts and it is, it's just disheartening, you know? Yeah. And like I was never inspired. I would have to say for two years of MBA and three and a half years of PhD, I can't say that I was ever inspired a single day in those years, you know, because of the way business was taught and, uh, and defined. Yeah. Well, one thing we're trying to do here is inspire people, Raj. I mean, hopefully with, uh, with, with you and others like you coming on and talking to us and sort of investigating, you know, how do we remake this thing? How do we make it better? 
that we can uh, we can inspire some people to follow their passion. So, look, I want to um, I, I want to thank you. Um, I could go on with this discussion forever. I want to at some point talk about the new book. Maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about the new book. We've been spending some time together on Sundays, uh, listen to you read that. So. We'll have to have you back on and talk about the new book and about the other seven or eight books that you've written since since we've known each other. We'll put those up all on the website for people to see Conscious Capitalism, a healing organization, Firms of Endearment, Everybody Matters, and, and a few others. So you can check it out and uh, and see why um, uh, this has all inspired me to do the things I do today. Raj, before we end, there's one thing we ask every guest um, I probably should tell people ahead of time so they think about this, but I don't know. It, it works out. What's the one thing uh, that's sort of top of mind for you on your plate right now that you know people listening could could help you with that we could that we could um, you know sort of uh, round up our community to provide you know to provide support for something that you're working on or something that you're struggling with? What would that be? Hmm. Well, you know, I'm about to take a position with Monterey Tech, which is a university in Mexico, Technological de Monterey. And, um, and they have a conscious enterprise center that they're setting up. And uh, so I'm now in the process of thinking about what, what should be the domain of activities of that center. It's going to include entrepreneurship. So I'm going to uh, talk to you about that at some point, you know, and, and assemble a board of advisors and, and, and set of activities that we want to do. So, so I'm now looking for ideas, et cetera, about what would, what would a, a, a high-profile center at a major university devoted to these kinds of topics? What are some of the questions we should be asking? Uh, what are some of the unsolved problems? Uh, we'll have a whole case writing uh, 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 you know, uh, capability there. So what are some stories that need to be told, yeah. etc.? So I think we're going to have the first sort of university-based uh, hub for, and we already have 70 professors wow. uh, from, from that university who have raised their hand and said, I want to be part of this, you know. So so that's what is front and center for me and would love ideas and thoughts about that. All right, so we'll put that out into the community and see uh, and see where we get back. Raj, um, always a pleasure, my friend. Great to see you. Uh, give my best to Neha, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Well, thank you, Jeff. It was great to see you. Okay, everybody. I hope you all enjoyed that. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Capitalism, the Remix. Until then, keep the faith, keep grinding, keep building with purpose, be kind, and do the right thing. We out. We out.